Well, welcome to week one of our new series on the book of Jonah. I'm uh, glad you're going to watch this with us and take part in, part in this whole study with us. But I know some of you are thinking, why the book of Jonah? As a matter of fact, I've had several of you come up to me and say, how are you going to stretch that little book into seven weeks? Well, I think you're going to be surprised how much content there is in that little book. There's only 48 verses in the entire book of Jonah. But if you're like me, you probably grew up in the church and you probably went to Sunday school and, and you've heard so many stories about Jonah. You, you know the story. You know how it goes. It's about the prophet who runs away from God and he gets swallowed by a whale. You, you know the story. But there's so much more to the story than that. If you go to the local Christian bookstore, you go to Amazon.com and you look up Jonah and the Whale, you're going to see that there's so many different books out on this topic. Uh, they've been produced over the centuries to where it's just ridiculous. And I'm going to read you one of those books right now just to give you an idea of, of what they do with this story of Jonah. So bear with me. And, and you may decide that once you've heard the story, you don't need to listen to the rest of what I have to say, but hopefully that won't be the case. This book says, In a faraway city called Nineveh, the king and his people were doing bad things. God wasn't happy. God told a man named Jonah to travel to Nineveh. Give the people there a message, God said. Tell them that they must learn to be good or I will destroy their city. Not good news. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He thought the people there should be punished if they were bad. Jonah thought that the people of Nineveh should be punished if they were doing bad things. He forgot about them and fell into a deep sleep on the ship. And as the ship sailed across the ocean, God whipped up a mighty storm. Fierce gusts of wind rocked the ship. Huge waves crashed against the deck. The sailors were terrified. It was the worst storm they'd ever seen. As for Jonah, he kept right on sleeping. The sailors rushed to Jonah and shook him awake. How can you sleep through this awful storm? What if the ship sinks, they said. Jonah knew that he had disobeyed God, and the storm was his punishment. He had to save the ship and everyone on board. The storm will not stop if you throw me overboard, Jonah told the sailors. The storm grew even worse. The wind and the waves nearly blew the ship right over. The sailors didn't want to throw Jonah overboard, but he told them that it was the only way to stop the storm. Please forgive us, God, they cried as they hurled Jonah into the ocean. Immediately, the storm died down and the water became calm. The ship sailed on. Poor Jonah started to sink to the bottom of the ocean. He didn't know how to swim. This is my punishment from God, he thought as he sank lower and lower. Then suddenly, an enormous whale came along and Jonah was sucked into its huge open mouth. The whale swallowed Jonah in one mighty gulp. Jonah ended up inside the whale. I haven't drowned, he said in surprise. He knelt down and prayed, Thank you for saving me, God. Please forgive me for disobeying you. For three days and three nights, Jonah was trapped inside the whale. He began to think that he would live there for the rest of his life. Jonah promised God that if he was given another chance, he would do the right thing and go to Nineveh. Then all of a sudden, the great whale swam to the shore and spat Jonah out. Jonah knelt on the beach and breathed in the fresh air. How glad he was to be alive. I'll give you another chance, Jonah, said God. Please tell the people in Nineveh that they must learn to be good or I will destroy their city. This time Jonah obeyed God and made the long journey to Nineveh. Jonah told the king and all the people that they must learn to be good or God would destroy Nineveh. Were they listening? 
Jonah wasn't sure. Hooray! The people of Nineveh did listen to Jonah. They asked forgiveness from God and promised to lead better lives. They began to share, care for each other, and help one another. Even the king shared his riches and worked hard to make the people of Nineveh happy. God was delighted and forgave them all. Why did you forgive the people of Nineveh instead of punishing them? Punishing them? Jonah asked God. They've learned to be good now, answered God. They needed another chance just like you did. Now Jonah understood the meaning of forgiveness. Wow, quite a story, but it's a crock. Uh, That story is so misleading, so misguided, and so wrong in so many ways. And yet that's the story most of us know when we think about Jonah. It's the one we were taught in Sunday school. It's the one that we've heard bannered about in culture. It's just this sweet story about a prophet who ran away from God and then got his act together and obeyed. And yet there's so much more to this story than meets the eye. It's a popular story and it's been popular for centuries. As a matter of fact, if you do a Google search, and just say, Jonah and the whale, you're going to get all kinds of images. And many of them are going to come out of the Middle Ages, the the medieval period of time. And and they're going to be in the form of these incredible stained glass windows that are in churches all across Europe, where they portray and try to illustrate what happened to Jonah. And they always have Jonah and the whale, some form of Jonah and the whale. And, And it's this picture of this incredible story about a man being swallowed by a giant fish. And they take a lot of different forms, but probably one of the craziest ones is in a church in Europe where the pulpit is actually a whale. And every week the prophet, the the priest, gets up and preaches from the whale's mouth, a la Jonah. So again, we see this imagery all throughout the churches of Europe. Uh, It's been told for centuries, but it almost always takes that childlike, mythical flavor that we just read. So let's look at the book of Jonah. We're only going to look at the opening verses, verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 1. And it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. So here in the first two verses of the book, we have the setting for what's about to take place. That Jonah, the son of Amittai, is being called by God to go and do something. But the question we have to ask as we begin the study of this book is, is it historical or is it allegorical? In other words, is it fact or fiction? Is this a real story that happened or is it a mythical story, a made-up story, in order to teach a lesson, a moral lesson? And it's interesting if you look at the different commentaries that have been written over the centuries about the book of Jonah, and there are many of them, they run the gamut. Many of them believe that it's historical. And the older ones tend to believe it's a historical story about a real person. Others believe that it's allegorical or it's an an extended parable. So we're going to have to wrestle with, is this story really true or is it just a children's story. I ran across some interesting quotes about the book of Jonah. 
One of them comes, comes from Charles Spurgeon, who I admire greatly. But he says, like Jonah, you may lose your gourd, but you cannot lose your God. Now, that may not make any sense to you because it's something that takes place later in the book about a plant that gives Jonah shade from the sun and then dies. And I'm almost embarrassed that Charles Spurgeon would go there. It, it's such a bad pun. But it, it illustrates that even among the great preachers, there's, there's a certain aspect of Jonah that is treated as almost ridiculous, silly, mythical, uh, fantastic. We, we have this from William Jennings Bryan. He says, if the Bible had said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I would believe it. It's this almost ludicrous statement that, yes, it's incredible, it's crazy that a whale, a fish would swallow a man and he would live in its belly for three days and then get thrown up on the shore. But you know what? I believe the Word of God and therefore, even if the Word of God said he swallowed the whale, I'd still believe it. And again, it's this picture of, yes, it's an unbelievable story. It's fantastic. It's fictional sounding, but I still believe it. We have to wrestle with what's going on in this book in order to understand the message of the book. And that's the key point. Uh, Groucho Marx, the inimitable Groucho Marx said, Oh, are you from Wales? Do you know a fella named Jonah? He used to live in Wales for a while. That is such a bad joke. And it's beneath Groucho Marx. But again, shows you a picture of how people view the story of Jonah and the whale. They don't take it seriously. Even Thomas Edison gets involved. He says, when down in the mouth, remember Jonah, he came out all right. Again, really bad pun, really bad joke. And it really reveals that Thomas Edison didn't take this story seriously. But here's the one I want to end on. This is from a current comedian TV host, Bill Maurer. And he says, if the Bible myth of Jonah in the whale and the mother goose myth of Jack and the Beanstalk were switched at birth so that Jack and the Beanstalk were in the Bible, do you think any child would notice? What's Bill Maher saying in his agnostic way? He's saying this story is not true. It's no more true than Jack and the Beanstalk. And a child that would believe Jack and the Beanstalk is going to believe Jonah and the whale. So weighing down the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah, are these ideas that it is a fictional story about a fictional character that just happens to have some good moralistic teaching attached to it. So we have to, again, wrestle with the fact, is it historical? Is it a true story? Is it a real person or is it allegorical? Is it simply meant to tell us something important, some moral lessons, some, some truths that we can take away? And if you read many of the commentaries and if you listen to sermons taught by many pastors over the centuries, what they will do is they will turn it into an allegorical tale only. And they'll draw out of it certain lessons that you and I can apply to our lives but again, we have to ask, is it just allegorical? And the truth is, the answer to both the question, is it historical, is it allegorical, is yes. It's both. But you can't take away the fact that it is an historical book that teaches us something about a real person who lived. Jonah is a real person who, who lived in a real situation, in real time, in the Middle East. 
he was a real person who was called by God to go to a real city called Nineveh and deliver a message from God. This is not a made up story. It may read like a fairy tale, but it's not fictional. And if you make it fictional, you lose the heart of the message. And we always have to remember that every one of the books of the Bible were written with an audience in mind. And we're going to drive home over the next weeks that this book was written with the Hebrew people in mind. A very specific Hebrew people living at a very specific time because this message was meant for them. And it is not fictional. And they knew it when they heard it. This book was actually read for the most part to the Jewish people because they didn't have copies of it to hand out to everyone. So it was typically read by someone to a large audience and they would hear the story of Jonah. And when it was read to them, they got the fact that this was a real person and it was a real story and it applied to them. And in a way, it, it extends to us living in the 21st century here in America. So again, it's not just fiction. It's difficult to believe, yes. But so much of the Scripture is difficult to believe because the Scriptures are the revelation of God. They reveal God. And God is an unbelievable being. He's bigger than life. He's bigger than we can understand. But all of the Scriptures, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, reveal who He is. And some of the ways that that happens are through the miracles, the unbelievable stories that are found in Scripture. Just consider these things. Consider the creation account in Genesis. Unbelievable. That God created the heavens and the earth and man and the animals and all the plants in a literal six days. And then He rested on the seventh day. Now, there are a lot of people who don't believe that. There are a lot of Christians who don't believe that. But that's an unbelievable story, right? How about this? The parting of the Red Sea in Exodus. That God, through Moses, split the Red Sea so that the people of Israel could walk across on dry ground. And then when the enemy, the Egyptians, tried to follow them, the waves crashed in on them and they drowned. Now there are those who say it wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. They didn't really cross over on dry ground. They crossed over on a very shallow body of water. But see, there again, we're trying to turn these stories either into fiction or trying to denude them of their miraculous power of God. How about this? The burning bush. Moses standing before a bush that burned but was not consumed, and out of that bush came the voice of God. That's a miracle. That's, that's unbelievable. It's, it's difficult to understand or explain. How about all the miracles of Jesus? Everything that He did, casting out demons, healing the sick, even raising the dead. And how about His own resurrection? All of these things point to God, our, our all-powerful, miracle-performing God. And the same is true of the book of Jonah. So yes, it's fantastic. It's got all kinds of stories in it and elements about it that make it difficult to understand or believe. But we have to understand that it is a true story. Again, it's about a real person. How do we know that? Over in 2 Kings chapter 14, we're introduced to Jonah, this man, for the first time. And in the book of Jonah, it doesn't tell us much about him. It most certainly doesn't tell us that he's a prophet, even though he's being called by God to deliver a message from God. But over in 2 Kings, we're told that Jeroboam II, son of Jehoash, began to rule over Israel. 
in the 15th year of King Amaziah's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 41 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to turn from the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had led Israel to commit. Jeroboam II recovered the territories of Israel between Lebohamoth and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised. Now catch this. Through Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So here we have in 2 Kings, Jonah, this man being described to us as a prophet of God from a region near Galilee to the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and so he's a real person. He lived in real time. He lived in real life. Even Jesus believed Jonah to be a real person. Look at Matthew chapter 12. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He didn't say the fictional prophet Jonah. He said the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Once again, he doesn't say, like in the story, the children's story about Jonah and the whale. No, he says, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And then he compares his coming death and resurrection to what happened to Jonah. So Jesus believed that he was a real person. And Jesus goes on and says, The men of Nineveh, the city to which Jonah was being called by God to go and preach, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Here's Jesus once again saying that Jonah was a real person. He went to a real city. He preached a real message from God, and the people of Nineveh repented. This was not a fairy tale. And then he adds something greater than Jonah is here. And we're going to unpack that in the weeks ahead. But the book of Jonah, in many ways, is going to point to Christ. And he is going to be the ultimate, the consummate, the perfect Jonah, who takes the message of God to the, the Gentile people. So is it historical? Yes. And yet, over the centuries, the church has been guilty of taking the book of Jonah and turning it into a cute little Sunday school story for children. And we've turned the Word of God into nothing more than a fairy tale that has a moral lesson, like Aesop's fables. But that's not what it is. It's not a cute parable that has a meaning, something that we can take away. It's, it's not about Jonah, who's this kind of reluctant hero who runs away from God. Then finally, as the little st story I read to you says, he realizes his transgression in the belly of the whale, and then he changes his mind, and he obeys God and does the right thing, and he becomes the hero. That's not what this story is about. As a matter of fact, even though the book bears his name, it's not a story about Jonah. This is a story about God, as is the rest of the Bible. And yet in this story, the whale always gets most of the attention. Every book that I've looked at, every children's story I've looked at, always has the whale on the cover. Jonah's the hero, but the whale's really the superstar, and God gets left in the dust. He, he gets ignored. He, yes, he gets mentioned in the story, but the whale gets a bigger billing than God himself. Why does that happen? Because we don't understand the story. Now, 
in some of these books, the way they describe them is amazing. And the way they describe the story of Jonah is ludicrous. This one, Jonah and the whale says, in this story with a moral, God forgives Jonah and gives him another chance. That's the story I just read to you. In this one, the story of Jonah is full of ingredients that children love, a dangerous mission, a man on the run, danger at sea, an incredible whale rescue, and a grand finale about forgiveness. It is not about forgiveness. Is forgiveness in the story? You bet. Because God's in the story. But they've missed the point. And then there's this one. Their, their description of the entire book is, it's what happens when you disobey God. That's what the story's all about. Now think about that. You, you teach that to a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 45-year-old. And we go and read the story and all we get out of it is that don't disobey God. Whatever He calls you to do, you better do it or something's going to happen. That is not the message of the book of Jonah. It's not a story about obedience. It's not a lesson on faithfulness. It's not a parable about forgiveness. Now, all of those things are in the story, but they're not the main point of the story. Ultimately, it's about God's redemptive plan. As is the whole Bible, it's about the redemptive plan of God for the world. See, that's the key theme that oftentimes gets missed. Robert Chisholm in his, his uh, book on the book of Jonah says, the overriding theme of the book is the sovereign, is the, the sovereign God's grace towards sinners illustrated in his decision to withhold his judgment from the guilty but repentant Ninevites. That's the story. But it extends beyond that. It's the story of what God's going to do for a people who deserved nothing but His wrath. They're going to receive grace. They're going to receive mercy. They're going to receive forgiveness, yes. But ultimately, it's a picture of God and sinful mankind. And it's really a story about God and the people of Israel. See, at the end of the day, when all said and done, and by the time these seven weeks are over, you're going to understand that the story of Jonah is really about Israel, the people of Israel, particularly the 10 northern tribes of Israel. So let's set some context. The author is either Jonah, and there are many who believe Jonah wrote the book, but there are just as many who think someone else wrote the book. I tend to lean towards the latter. I, I don't think Jonah wrote the book. I think someone else wrote the book about Jonah. How about this? Who's the audience? Well, as I've said, it's the people of Israel, those people living in the northern kingdom of Israel. What's the date? There's a lot of debate about this. When was the book written? Well, some believe it was written during Job, Jeroboam II's reign, what we read about in 2 Kings. And that would have been somewhere between 793 to 753 B.C. But there are others who believe that it was written after the exile, when the people of Israel and the people of Judah were in exile in Assyria and in Babylon. I tend to lean towards that dating, that it was written later. It was written somewhere between 460 and 420 B.C. And I'll explain that as we go along. But irregardless of when it was written or exactly who wrote it, we do know that the audience to whom it was written were the people of God, the Israelites. So Jonah is called by God to come and teach them, 
to teach them through his life. And then it's recorded for prosperity and included in the canon of Scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we, thousands of years later, can read this story and understand better our God. So it's not an isolated story. It's not 48 verses that we're to read and disconnect from the rest of Scripture. It's part of the larger narrative of Scripture. I like to compare it to those stained glass windows. It's like one piece of glass, colored glass, that's part of a much bigger picture, the entirety of Scripture. And it adds to the picture. It's not to be taken out of the context and read individually in and of itself because it fits in the whole narrative of Scripture. And it doesn't begin in chapter 1 of the book of Jonah, and it doesn't end with the last verse of chapter 4. One of the things we're going to find out is that this story is a cliffhanger. It ends without a resolution. We don't know what happens to Jonah. We don't know exactly what happens to the people of Nineveh. It just ends, and it leaves us hanging. But again, it's all about God, His redemptive plan, as illustrated through Jonah, who represents Israel and the fallen people of the world represented by the Ninevites. Now, the, the very first word of this book is the word now. That's how it opens up. It just says now. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but in the Hebrew, it's a word that conveys so much more. What it really means is and it happened that, and then it goes on. So it, it kind of sets the stage. Something's about to happen, but it's linked to something that came before it. He's continuing, the author is continuing an existing story. He's not telling you an independent story about Jonah. He's saying that now, as it happened, it happened that because of this, this took place. It's a continuation. Now, again, because this was written for the Jews, they would have gotten the connection. They would have known the rest of the story because they had lived it. They understood what was going on. Now, part of what you received as, as part of your notebook content, if you haven't downloaded that, you can go to the website and do so. But there's a devotionary. That's, that's something that I write on a daily basis. And I did a devotionary on the book of Jonah. And one of the things I wrote in there was that the author was letting his readers know that what they were about to read was a story, but it was not an isolated or independent one. The book of Jonah was not intended to be taken as a freestanding narrative, but as an integral part of a much larger story. The author is linking his chronicle of Jonah's Ninevite mission to the writings of Amos and Hosea. Now this is going to be incredibly important because we don't have a lot of content in the book of Jonah. It's only 48 verses. But we do have the books of Amos and Hosea who were contemporaries of Jonah. They were also prophets of God who also prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes who made up the northern kingdom of Israel. And so these contemporaries of Jonah provide us with a lot of detail about what was going on under the reign of King Jeroboam II in Israel. And it's not going to be good. But here's what Amos 1.1 says. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. 
He's prophesying during the same period of time that Jonah was. Hosea 1.1 opens up the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bari, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So these, these three men are all called of God. They're prophets of God, and they all are communicating on behalf of God. The unique thing about Jonah is, is that he's called to go to the people of Nineveh. He's the only prophet we have who physically was told to go to a pagan people, a non-Jewish people, to a Gentile nation. Now, all of these men prophesied against these Gentile nations, but they weren't required to go there. Jonah was. And so these three men are going to provide us with the details concerning what's going on in the kingdom of Israel. Here's what Amos says in his book. And it starts out in chapter 2, verse 6. He said, They, Israel, sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. There's some injustice going on. We think we have injustice in our day. They had injustice in their day. He goes on and says, They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. These people who are the called people of God, the chosen people of God, don't even know how to do right. And God says, Many are your transgressions, how great are your sins. These people had perfected the art of sin. And they were idolatrous, they were immoral, and they were living in darkness. And he says, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. The word of God. So this is just a little glimpse of what Amos had to say about the people of Israel. Here's what Hosea says. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Man, that's an incredible indictment, right? That in the land of Israel, the 10 northern tribes that make up the northern kingdom of Israel, there's no faithfulness and there's no steadfast love and they have no knowledge of God. Things had gotten really bad in Israel. He goes on and says, there's swearing, there's lying, there's murder, stealing, and committing, committing of adultery. Now that sounds like what you'd expect to find in Nineveh, a pagan city, but he's talking about Israel. He says, they, they know not the Lord. They don't know Yahweh. They don't know God. And these people have become like silly, witless doves. Now, this is fascinating. That word doves in the Hebrew is Yonah, Y-O-N-A. Guess what Jonah's name is, Yonah in Hebrew, dove. That's why Jonah is a symbol of Israel. They, he says they have become like silly, witless doves, flitting about, clueless of where they're going, have no knowledge of the Lord and living in sin, much like the Ninevites. No faithfulness in the land of Israel. So we see from these two men, Amos and Hosea, that things are not good in the land of Israel. They're living in a very decadent and immoral time. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 14, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, the southern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He, he has one of the longest reigns of all the kings of either Judah or Israel. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now, just so you understand, he's named after the first king to rule over the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam the first was placed there by God. See, God split the kingdom of Israel after the reign of Solomon because of his sins, because of his unfaithfulness, because of his 
spiritual adultery. And he created Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And Jeroboam the first was the first king to rule. And he started off on a bad footing, worshiping false gods. And Jeroboam, his namesake, takes after him just like all the other kings of Israel. They all did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so you have God in this picture, everything going south in the land of Israel, the kings walking away from God, worshiping false gods and leading the people of Israel to do the same. God's going to step into this picture with impeccable timing. He's still on his throne. He's still in control. He knows what he's doing. And the way the book of Jonah opens up is it says, and it happened that, that word now, another way of saying it is about that time when everything's going south, when everything has gone poorly in the land of Israel, right when things were as bad as they could possibly get, God steps into the picture. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. See, that's how this book opens up. And the Jewish audience who were reading it or hearing it read to them would have made the connection. Now let's say they're living in exile. Let's say that the northern kingdom has fallen to the Assyrians, which eventually happens. They're living in exile, basically as slaves, somewhere in Assyria. And this story is read to them. They're, they're going to make the connection, right? That... And it happened that Jonah was sent to Nineveh, right in the midst of when they had been living at their worst during the days of Amos, during the days of Hosea, when these men were prophesying against them, when they were living completely unfaithful to God, God sent Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of the nation where they're now living in captivity. So you can't forget that. You can't leave that out of this story because it makes the story make sense. And so that's what we're going to try to do over the next weeks as we go through the story of Jonah. See, what God said to Jonah, this Jewish prophet who was prophesying to Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, he comes to him and he says, okay, I, I have a new assignment for you. You're going to leave here and you're going to go somewhere else. He says, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil. And in Hebrew, that word is ra. And the author of Jonah is going to use that word over and over again in a variety of ways. It's R-A, ra. He says, their evil has come up before me. So, so get your mind around this. This Hebrew prophet who was born in the region that we now know as the region of Galilee, the, the same region where Jesus grew up. He's being called to leave and go to Nineveh, that great city, that evil city. And see, Jonah knows how evil they are. The people hearing the story read know how evil the Ninevites are because they're living there. They've been defeated by them. They've been captured by them. They've been exported to Nineveh and they're living there as nothing more than slaves. And so here, <laughs> excuse me, is God sending this prophet to the people of Nineveh and he's going to go all the way from the coastline of the Mediterranean all the way some 500 plus miles to Nineveh, the capital 
of one of the worst and most decadent cities that existed in that day and age. And you're going to see that he's not going to want to do this assignment. And he's so not going to want to do this assignment that he basically runs from God. And that's, the, that's what the story is all about. But he doesn't want to go. And we can understand why. See, he's being asked to go into the belly of the beast. Now, we're going to read about the belly of the whale. But really, he's going into the belly of the beast of Nineveh. One of the most cruel and wicked places you could go. And especially as a Jew. He's being told by God to go there. And it was an, an incredible place. It was rich. It was lush. The, the buildings were incredible. But he had no desire to go there. It, it, it's like um, Las Vegas on steroids. It, it, it's, it's a place of immorality. It's, a, it's a, place, a place of cruelty. It's a place of idolatry. And yet God is sending him to go to these people. See, again, in, in, in my devotionary, I wrote that the Assyrians had a well-deserved reputation for immorality, idolatry, and wanton cruelty. They were amazing. And you can go read in any encyclopedia. You can do a Google search, and you'll get a, just an incredible picture of just how cruel these people were. They were evil incarnate to Jonah. It's the worst place you could be sent as a prophet of God. It's the worst place you could go as a child of God. But what you have to understand is that from God's perspective, they were made in His image. They were the Imago Dei, just as much as the people of Israel were, just as much as Jonah was. They had been made in His image. And that's one of the things you and I as modern day Christians forget is that some of the people that we disagree with in our own country and around the world, we fail to understand that they also were made in the image of God. See, God had made the Israelites, but He'd also made the Ninevites. And Jonah didn't want to think about that. He didn't want to understand that. He saw a vast difference between himself and the Ninevites. But see, what's amazing is that God had called out the people of Israel. He had called them out and He had set them apart as His own. You remember the story back in Genesis where God calls Abram out of Ur and he tells him, out of you I will make a great nation. But why did he do that? Why did God take Abram, a pagan living in Ur of the Chaldees? He wasn't a Jew. The Jews didn't exist at this point. But he's living in Ur. He gets called by God, sent to the land of Canaan, and he's made a promise by God that he's going to make of him a great nation. I'm going to multiply you. I'm, I'm going to do something with you. Why? Why did God call that man and out of him make a nation that he would call his own? Well, you have to look at Isaiah 42 verses 5 through 7. Listen to what this says. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people, all people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it, Israelites and Ninevites alike, I am the Lord. I have called you, the people of God, the Hebrew people, in righteousness, and I will take you by the hand and keep you. I've called you out. I've set you apart. But then he goes on, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. That's why he called them out. They, they were to be a covenant, a sign for all people, and they were to be a light for the nations. 
to open the eyes that are blind. Now, don't miss this. To bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That's why God set them apart. That's why God called them. Now, here's God calling Jonah and saying, go into one of the darkest places in the world at that time. Why? Because you're my prophet, because you're a child of God, because you're a Hebrew and you've been set apart and you're to be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. Get up and go. See, that's what Jonah was being called to do. And in verse 6 of chapter 49 of Isaiah, it says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, ultimately, guys, what we're going to find out is the book of Jonah is about God and it's about Israel being a light to the nations and the fact that they failed. They had not ever lived up to their calling as the people of God. See, Israel had been called by God, set apart by God to be a light to the nations and their light had faded. They were living in darkness. They were just as immoral, just as decadent, just as unfaithful as the people of Nineveh. But they didn't think they were. Jonah didn't think he was. They were filled with pride. They were filled with arrogance. And yet they were living in spiritual darkness. So when God calls Jonah and gives him a commission to go to Nineveh, he's going to refuse. But that's not the end of the story because God had unfinished business. God wasn't going to let Jonah get away with it because he had called him. He had set him apart and he was going to send him whether he liked it or not because God had more that He was going to do. And that's really what this story is all about. See, even the Apostle Paul, centuries later, would write about this very thing. Listen to what he says. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, and in this way announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. Don't miss what Paul is saying there. Yes, the Israelites had failed. They had not been a light to the nations. But see, God was not done yet. God had a plan to bring the light through His Son, Jesus Christ. We just finished last semester studying the Gospel of John. And in the opening chapters of the Gospel of John, it tells us that the light came into the world, Jesus Christ, because He was the light of the world. He came into the darkness of the world to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. See, God has a bigger plan. And it's not just about Jonah. It's about His grand redemptive plan for all mankind. So in your time of reflection this week, whether you do it individually, whether you do it in a group, here's the three questions I have for you. First of all, I want you to go read John 1, 9 through 13 that talks about Jesus being the light of the world. In what way does this passage about Jesus, the Messiah, tie in with the story of Jonah. Secondly, are we guilty of failing to recognize that the Assyrians of our day are made in the image of God and in what ways? In other words, we got people we hate. We have people who we think are worse than the Assyrians and we don't see them as made in God's image. How do we change that mindset? Because we need to change that mindset. Because we too are now called to be a light to the world. And then finally, why is it important to read the Bible as one book and not as an isolated, independent set of stories? See, don't read this book lifted out of its context 
it fits in with all the other books of the Bible. And together they provide an incredible story of God's redemptive plan for the world that He made and the humanity that desperately needs to see the light of God's goodness as revealed through Jesus Christ His Son. So wrestle with these questions. And then next week we're going to begin to unpack the first part of Jonah. And you're going to see this story is anything but a children's story. It's fascinating and it's deep. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time to get together. I thank you for these next seven weeks. I pray that you would open up our eyes, help us to see, help us to understand what you have to teach us through the book of Jonah. But more than anything, Father, would we walk away with a greater understanding and appreciation for your incredible redemptive plan that is far from done. And you want to use us just as much as you used Jonah. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you. And we look forward to what you have to teach us over the weeks ahead. And I pray all of this, all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Hey, we'll see you guys next week for part two in our series on the book of Jonah.